Hello and welcome to another UK Column interview. Now at the UK Column, we welcome everybody. And since COVID, over the last three years, we have heard from many expert scientists, we've heard from GPs, we've heard from lawyers, biologists, pharmaceutical consultants, nurses, care assistants, and many eminent professors from pretty much every field. However, we have never heard from a consultant veterinary surgeon, but today all that changes. I'm really over the moon to be able to introduce our guest today because I'm so grateful that we're at last speaking to a vet. We live in a country in the UK of animal lovers. People have pets all over the, the globe, cats, dogs, hamsters, horse riders, horses, cat, cattle, pigs. I mean, you name it. Animals are an integral part of our lives on planet Earth. So today, welcome to Roger Meacock. Now, Roger is at the forefront of quantum veterinary medicine. And Roger is a vet with a difference. Roger is a vet for everyone. And that actually includes humans, but I'll let him explain that in a minute. Some people will call Roger the last chance vet. Some people will call Roger the holistic vet. And for every extraordinary situation, it requires an extraordinary solution and an extraordinary vet. And Roger is that extraordinary vet. And uh, he also takes on people, as I said, because he's a complementary and alternative practitioner. And the other thing about Roger is that he never gives people false hope, um, but he uses some extraordinary methods with which to heal animals. So without further ado, Roger, welcome to UK Column and thank you so much for agreeing to speak to us. Please introduce yourself and tell us how you arrived here at UK Column. Hi Debbie, thank you very much. I mean, it's, um, it's great to be on UK Column News. I, I listen to the podcast when I'm driving around, so it's, it's a bit surreal to be here in some ways. But um, yeah, I qualified as a fairly normal standard vet, was never really interested in anything other than the conventional way of working. Um, and then started messing around with some magnets and got some amazing results that I wasn't expecting. And from there moved into various other technologies, including Skinar, bioresonance, um, and most recently wave genetics. Um, so I, I, I concentrate on the alternative now. I don't do any conventional vet work anymore and um you know i treat treat animals as a vet and i treat people as, as a human practitioner um so i get into all sorts of cases where people have perhaps you know want a different way to approach what's already been diagnosed by their conventional vet or they're not quite sure what's going on or they just want to speed the healing process up or, or try and do it in a different way so that's pretty much where where i come in and then now, I got in contact with, with UK Column News um, because I became concerned about the potential use of, of the mRNA products in animals in future, and I've written an open letter to the VMD. So I uh, I wrote or contacted uh, you, Debbie, just to you know, have, have a chat about it all. 
And I'm really, really glad you did, uh, Roger, because for a long time, um, I've been looking at the animal kingdom. And uh, in a past life, I studied hepatitis E with a very eminent uh, world expert, Dr. Harry Dalton. And through that, I started looking at zoonosis, zoonotic diseases, and also reverse zoonosis. Um, and I was absolutely fascinated to find out from you that whilst we've been listening to many medical doctors and we know about mRNA, or at least we're starting to learn the dangers of mRNA in humans, I think in the UK, we've got probably about seven COVID vaccines um, authorized, um, many of them mRNA, with much more mRNA coming down the line for humans. However, please, Roger, could you tell everybody how is mRNA being used in animals now? Because I think this might surprise people because I thought it would be very similar. However, you told me different. How is mRNA uh, being used in animals at the moment? There's quite a lot on, say, or there was at one point quite a lot on social media saying that the, the COVID uh, mRNA products were going to be were being used in animals. And so I wanted to check that out for myself. Um, as it turns out, there is actually only one mRNA product that's licensed in the USA for pigs called Secrivity. And I was horrified, really, to discover that it's not quite the same as the way the mRNA products are being manufactured and, and marketed in the UK uh, for, uh, for, for people. So with the Secrivity in pigs, um, say, for example, there's an outbreak of swine flu, then the vet will go along, take some swabs from the pigs, send the swabs off to the laboratory. They will um, sequence the pathogen, decide on a gene of interest, and from there, they will manufacture an mRNA product to produce a protein that they've effectively chosen from the, the sequencing that they've done of that pathogen and then produce an mRNA product for that which goes back to the farm and then the farmer injects or the vet injects it. And that whole process takes eight to 12 weeks. Um, so although the license for Secrivity is based on one product that was submitted to the FDA for authorization, what they've effectively done is authorized a process whereby a completely novel product is potentially going to be used in on every different farm, none of which have been tested individually for their efficacy or safety, not just for the pigs, but whether there's any potential um, implications for, for for that food going into the into the human food chain or into the the pet food chain because a lot of um, a lot of pet feeder, feeders are, are feeding raw these days as well. So. Um, you know, it's it really sort of got my alarm bells ringing from what I'd understood from a lot of other experts about about the mRNA products in general. Yeah, Roger, can I ask you if um, an mRNA injection is being given into a pig? Um, has there been not that I'm saying mRNA should be used for any any animal or any human? However, it is obviously being used. Um, how long or have there be, has there been any data to say if that pig were to develop an adverse reaction, would you see it before perhaps they were being slaughtered maybe? Or 
would that pig um, possibly carry a risk to future piglets, for example? So has any of that data, as far as you know, been accumulated? Because, you know, we have to remember that for mRNA in humans, humans are expected to live as long as they're going to live, right? But animals are mainly bred, um, farm animals are bred for slaughter. So does this have a an impact? Because I can see that it's a huge difference and there's no data again. Yes, it's it's a different situation, as you say, Debbie, because, you know, the, the lifespan of a lot of um, the animals we use for as meat sources it is relatively short. You know, in chickens, it's as short as five to six weeks. Um, in uh, in other species, it, you know, you're talking six to eight months, something like that, maybe for, for sheep. And then for beef, it can be anything from 80 to 30 months. So although you could potentially see some um, acute reactions to, to, the, to the injections when they're given, if there are medium and long-term effects, then they wouldn't necessarily manifest. But um, my concern when I was writing the open letter of concern was, was, was the, the risk of prion diseases, which of course we saw in the 1990s with BSE, um, bovine spongiform encephalopathy. And um, of course, that may not necessarily manifest um, quickly enough to to raise alarm bells and when you've got different products being used on different farms you know, the pharmacovigilance becomes nigh on impossible because you're not monitoring the same situation on every farm that's using the same product in inverted commas because it's not the same product it's got the same product name but the the protein which the body is being directed to produce won't be uniform across all of those using it so, you know, how do you say if if one protein that is randomly chosen to be manufactured in the body, if it is prionogenic, then that will only be used on, on maybe a few farms um, and it may be different proteins on different farms. So it, it's, it just makes the safety monitoring nigh on impossible from what, from what I could tell. Right. So before we come on to prion, disease. Let's stay with um, what you've actually done, Roger, because um, you've opened my eyes, that's for sure, because um, so much has come to light through speaking to you um, and keeping in close communication with you. And at this point, I'd like to introduce our audience to the BMD, who you may not have heard of, but it's the Veterinary Medicine Directive. Now, the, meds, the Veterinary Medicine Directive, I'll call it VMD for short, basically is running completely in parallel almost with our very own MHRA, the Medicines Health Regulator, um, with Dame June Rain. And as most of our audience will know, we've done much work um, trying to look at what the MHRA are and aren't doing with regards to the last three years in particular. And it struck me that the VMD works in a very similar way, um, only they're not responsible to the Department of Health, they're responsible to DEFRA. And the Chief Veterinary Officer, so if you like the equivalent to Professor Chris Whitty for Chief Medical Officer, 
is a lady called Christine Middlemass. Um, however, the VMD is actually run by a civil servant. And I think we'll have to do a whole new interview about the parallels that are, are clear between the VMD and the MHRA, no, no more so than antimicrobial resistance, which is another huge subject I'd like to touch with you at maybe a future date. But the VMD advises ministers, but this time in DEFRA. So this is their, the veterinary regulator in DEFRA. And like the MHRA, they operate on stakeholders. Um, and I'm looking at their board with great interest. But clearly, we can see a lot of parallels. So with that in mind, Roger, as a vet and as a consultant vet, and I think it's right to tell people that, you know, well, actually, let's do that before we talk about your open letter of concern. Let's just clarify for our audience what does it take these days to become a vet, Roger? Because you are just as qualified as a medical doctor, but we don't call you doctor. But what kind of training did you have to go through to become a consultant vet? Yes, it's it's a similar length university course to that the medics go through to become a human doctor. So it's um, five years. Um, I was at Bristol University and... There was three years of preclinical work, which was mostly theoretical, and then two years of, of clinical. Um, so you were out doing practical stuff and uh, and out in the field and you know learning surgery and all the rest of it. So um, unlike the medics, we do all the different species. So um, it, that we probably perhaps don't go into quite the same depth in some things that, that we do because you've got to cover so many more species but on the other hand you know the influences on the course are still very much sort of farmer and commercial pet food related um, I mean for years one of my um, orange boxes that I've been climbing on has been all about raw feeding for our pets and and how um, the kibbles are the equivalent of the McDonald's um, in, in humans so you know it's the influence of the external influences from the corporates is is very much as evident in you know the veterinary field as it is in in the medical field um so yeah there there are big parallels from that point of view so actually Roger you are extremely highly qualified and very experienced with a couple of decades plus 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 um to, to look back on. I mean, you know, this is quite remarkable that we're not speaking to more people like you. So I understand it that you wrote this incredible um, letter of concern to the Veterinary Medicine Directive. And oh, by the way, to the audience, all of these links will be found in the article beneath and where to contact Roger, because I'm sure many of you will want to contact Roger personally. But um, you wrote this letter, Roger, with Dr. Kevin McCann, who's a neuroscientist, as I believe. Um, it was a joint open letter. And can you tell us a bit more about your very serious concerns with regards to mRNA? Yes. I mean, it was, you know, when the first lockdown happened, everybody had a lot of time on their hands, didn't they? So, you know, I, I sort of realised fairly early on that I wasn't quite happy with what was the, the narrative being pushed out and I I followed various um, doctors and experts in different fields 
So one of the people I came across was Dr. Richard Fleming, and he did a great interview with Dr. Kevin McCann about um, prions and gain of function of the spike protein. And then I came across some other videos, one by a geneticist talking about microRNA, and then uh, somebody else um, talking about the lipid nanoparticles. And it occurred to me that some of the dangers or some of the adverse reactions that you know have been witnessed in the human side may not have been solely responsible by the the, the uh, spike protein, but actually there were other elements to being an mRNA product itself that was inherently dangerous. And then I think Dr. Ryan Cole he put out a statement saying basically mRNA products are inherently dangerous themselves. So I reached out and I spoke to Dr. Kevin McCann, who's in Japan, and we had a, a Zoom and discussed my concerns about the prion diseases because when I qualified, I went into farm veterinary practice and I was um, a local veterinary inspector. So one of my jobs for DEFRA at the time was to uh, certify cows in their early stages of, of mad cow disease um, for, for the compensation for the farmers. So. I've witnessed, um, you know, prion diseases in cattle, and although um, it was the feed manufacturers and the, and the legislation that changed, you know, it was very much the farmers who got the blame for BSC when actually all they did was feed the feed that came through the, you know, on the lorry. So um, my concern was that if mRNA products in themselves could increase prion production in the animals, then we know from the BSC that if humans eat contaminated meat, it can lead to new variant CJD. And so my concern was, you know, could an mRNA product of any type become prionogenic? And if that meat goes into the food chain, what is the, you know, what are the dangers to, to people? And um, clearly, there doesn't seem to have been sufficient safety research done. So Kevin and I decided to write this open letter of concern and fully reference it. So it's quite scientific, but there is a simplified version there as well. And on the basis that we probably would only get one bite of the cherry to, you know, to, to put our concerns across and hopefully, if the VMD are aware of those possibilities and concerns in advance, that um, hopefully they will be a little bit more um, strict, should we say, with how they license or authorize any mRNA products for animals in the future. Uh, and given that this product, Sequivity, has been licensed in the USA, um, you know, I assumed it would only be a matter of time before similar products would be um, all, you know, applied for in the UK. Um, the Australian government has said that they are going to rush through um, an mRNA product for lumpy skin disease. And I also know from, from videos that I've watched that um, mRNA products, uh, or, or there is gene therapy vaccines, in inverted commas, um, being developed for sheep. So that was my concern really was I thought it was more likely that refusal would be more forthcoming if advanced 
warning was given rather than trying to withdraw a product after it had already been authorised. Roger, can we, um, well, can, could you, um, for many of our audience, may not quite understand the relevance or the connections Um I mean, I I have to to look them up as well because they can get confusing. But the connections between prion disease, mad cow disease, um, CJD, um, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, um, and how this neurodegenerative, because prion disease is a neurodegenerative disease, could you explain a little bit? Because at the minute we say mad cow disease, we think back um, and we'll come on to maybe Professor Neil Ferguson and his modelling and what happened before. Um, but can you explain prion disease, mad cow disease and how that would affect the, the interconnections between animals and humans on that? Sure. Yeah. Um, so basically a prion is a protein which um, is transmissible. So it can go between individuals and, you know, in the case of the BSC, it was able to cross species from cattle into humans. So mad cow disease is like the colloquial name given to BSE. So bovine cattle, spongiform encephalopathy. So the spongiform talks about the pathology that happens in the brain uh, and encephalopathy is to do with the brain. So um, basically what happens is, if the protein is, is consumed in the case of the BSE, then the people who got it got a spongiform encephalopathy themselves, which in people was called Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. So, you know, it, it's, it's sort of quite, it's sort of one condition that goes across the different species. And in sheep, the colloquial name is scrapie. Um, I don't know if there is any evidence of the scrapie that was already been known about being transmissible to people. But the point is when new novel proteins are being introduced into the animals, then um, we've, it won't necessarily, necessarily be the same scrapie or the same spongiform encephalopathy or neurodegenerative um, condition exactly that we've seen in the past. So it is quite possible that there may be new or novel variations of prion diseases and one of the more recent understandings of um, prions is that individual viral proteins can be prionogenic so you obviously when you've got a virus there are various different proteins associated with it um, so it could be that you know, I don't know how many how many proteins there are on a single virus, but for argument's sake, say there's ten, and if there's one of them is prionogenic, but it's with the other nine, because a viral particle is fairly large, there's only certain areas of the body it can go to, and maybe the fact that that prionogenic protein, as part of a whole virus, doesn't exert that prionogenic activity, but if it was to be separated, isolated, and then provided in isolation, um, then maybe that is when it becomes prionogenic. So, you know, when you've got that situation with the sequivity where novel proteins are being chosen seemingly at random from um, a virus infection into the animals, then from what I can see, certainly within eight to 12 weeks, there is no time at all 
to be able to ascertain whether that protein is going to be prionogenic at all. And, you know, it could be that what I'm warning about isn't going to happen. But equally, there is enough evidence to suggest it is possible. Um, and the bottom line is the time hasn't been given to the safety process to determine what the true situation is. So that is really where, you know, the concern and the warning is, you know, I don't want to be too sensationalistic, but, you know, we do need to bear in mind certain possibilities. And just because the mRNA products that were rushed through for COVID, there now seems to be this idea across the board that we can suddenly rush them through for anything else. And because there's such um, suppression of the adverse effects going on, then, and the focus of the scientists is on the benefit that they think they can get from the mRNA products. They're not contemplating, you know, the, the other side, the harmful side that can potentially happen, and then there's not enough time being done to, to check whether it happens or not. Roger, what would the effects um, be? What would the symptoms be um, for humans if they were to consume uh, meat um, with, we, we've got no data, so we don't know the, uh, the, the precise effects, but the, the, what are the symptoms of a prion's disease? What would we be expecting to look for? Yeah, it'd be similar probably to something like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. So there might be um, some, depends on where, where in the brain gets affected. So you could have some sort of um, behavioral or, or mental changes um, but also if it affects some of the motor centers of the brain that control movement, then you could, you, you're going to get changes there or changes in how the nerve functions. So, for example, on, in, in the mad cow disease, in the BSC, when it's more advanced, the, the cows were very uncoordinated and they were staggering and they were falling over. Um, but in the very early stages, and the farmers got very good at spotting um, it very early, there were behavioral, subtle behavioral changes. So they would be more reactive to noise or something stimuli around them um, and would become quite aggressive. So I was actually inspecting uh, a cow once and it had been separated out into a bullpen and it was a very early stage so it was very subtle as to whether it was coming on at all or not and um so i was in with the cow and sort of wandering around it and just flicking cracking my fingers to try and see see what response i was getting and the next thing i know is the cow attacked me and was had me up against the wall and um was, was basically trying to maul me so um so, you know, you get very unpredictable behaviours. So that's, you know, we, we would have to say that all those variations, either together or singularly, or, you know, could, are potential, you know, sequelae if, if, if people were to, were, to, were to have that problem. Interesting. And some of those symptoms um, have actually been noted on the MHRA um, database of serious adverse reactions. Um, from people having had MR, mRNA um, injections. Um, and until, of course, we have the data and we have a full investigation and we have a stoppage of all of this, we're never going to know for sure. Um, but 
Can you can you tell me, Roger, from a, a vet's perspective and a researcher, um, when what do we know about mRNA in animals? Because as far as I was aware, it was never ever seen to be good in animals. When when was this discovered? Yeah, I mean it's got quite a long history when you when you look back at the research and the first paper that was published um, talking about the mRNA use in you know in obviously laboratory research animals was back in 1990 and of course um, everything gets gets researched behind closed doors to a certain degree. Um, but there has never been any mRNA products brought to market until the sequivity, which, you know, the late 20 teens, I think it was. So, um, you know, there, there is, it, it's sort of seen as, as a desirable end product for the vaccines. And there's, there's talk about potentially maybe even moving some of the, you know, standard true vaccines that we currently use that they could potentially be moved across to the mRNA platform because they are seen as stronger type vaccines that get a, induce a stronger immune reaction. So they're, they're perceived to be better. Um, but as you know, Debbie, you know, just because something is good, more of it isn't necessarily better. Um, so, you know, they have been struggling to get these products to market really before um before the COVID and before before the sequivity. So but they're, they're seen as, as a desirable future for for vaccination, although they're not really proper vaccines. Um Roger, with um human mRNA um manufacturers, we're getting used to the names Pfizer and Moderna, for example. Am I correct in thinking that this sequivity, this mRNA for pigs, is that Merck? Um, am I correct in thinking that's Merck Pharmaceutical? Yes, I think it's, I think it's MSD Merck, isn't it? I think um, off the top of my head. But of course, you know, the, there have been a number of partnerships announced between some of the big pharma and some of the smaller labs who have obviously been working specifically on this sort of technology. Um, so, you know, there will be anybody who wants to be involved in the in the vaccine. Um, field in future, I suspect, will are now looking towards, you know, these um, these gene therapy platforms as as the way forward. And you know, some of them will be mRNA, and then the others might be viral vector, a bit like the AstraZeneca one using some sort of DNA. So you know, until until they're on the market, we won't necessarily know which types are being developed in preference um, and for which conditions. Um, but but if sequivity is to be, you know, a gauge of anything that's to come, there will be a move very much to, you know, integrate it into part of the practice where vets will go out, swab, send it back to the lab product for production and, you know, try and get that process down to eight to 12 weeks and maybe even faster, they're hoping, I suspect, in future. Um, so, you know, there is, you know, there's there's... So so little that we actually know about what we're messing around with. I mean, I always say to people, you know, I qualified 25 plus years ago. And at the time you qualify, you think you know quite a lot. And then 20 years later, you know a million times more than you knew 
when you when you qualify, but actually you realise instead of being 95%, you actually realise it's probably not even a half a percent. So there are certain elements of biology that really aren't fully understand, especially the microRNAs, and you know to interfere with that degree of biology in something we don't even understand how it all coordinates in a healthy individual, um, in my mind, is just asking for disaster. And with a, with the number of animals that are you know obviously reared for, for for meat consumption they you know they run into the millions every year just in the uk so you know worldwide that's going to be you know hundreds maybe even billions so you know the, the more you do these processes and the more random it is the more likely you're going to end up producing something that isn't what it should be at the end of the day and you know even as we know with the the human products you know, it's the only thing we've got to go on is that the manufacturing quality was so poor that even if you understand what you think you're putting in, if the manufacturing quality is only 55% or 70%, it may sound, even if it was 90%, it still sounds quite high, but actually it means that 10% of something you're putting in, we don't understand what it is and what it's going to do. Um, so, you know, it, it, it does seem to be playing with things that we really don't um, understand to the degree we need to if we're going to mess with them. Wow, you've got you've brought up so much there that I'd like to unpack. So I want to unpack a couple of of things that you referenced there for our audience because um, the links to Roger's website will obviously be on the article beneath. And from Roger's website, I took this data about um, how many animals in the UK we slaughter, as Roger said, millions. So this is the data. So in the UK, every year we slaughter approximately 2.6 million cattle, 10 million pigs, 14.5 million sheep and lambs, 80 million fish, 950 million birds are slaughtered for human consumption, which I found quite breathtaking. And, you know, we look at clinical trials um, and the traditional clinical trial or historic clinical trial for traditional vaccines, I say that in inverted commas, was anything between five and 10 years. Many of those clinical trials were performed, or all of those clinical trials, sorry, were performed on animals first. And those clinical trials might have run into two, three, four years. However, now with human medicines, we know that Sir Patrick Valance and uh, Melinda Gates co-wrote the 100-day mission so that if the World Health Organization should call any kind of emergency, it would allow for the very, very fast accelerated delivery, manufacture and production of all novel therapeutics including vaccines, in 100 days. And from what I'm seeing with the Veterinary Medicine Directive and the MHRA, that everybody's working from the same agenda and all routes are leading back to the WHO, which we'll come on to in a minute, into One Health, because I know that veterinary health and human health, it's all intertwined. But can I just bring you back very quickly, just to give our audience a very quick explanation, because you made a very 
um, a very important differentiation there because there are two um, mRNAs, aren't there? And there's a difference. So there's micro RNA and there's messenger RNA. And it's subtle, but it's vital we, we are able to understand the difference. Could you explain the difference to us, Roger? Yeah, sure, Debbie. I mean, messenger RNA is the one that they've all been telling us is just involved with the transcription from the genetic code into the final protein. And, um, you know, those are very quite long um, molecules of, of nucleotides to, 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 to create that whole uh, mRNA sequence. Um, with microRNA, as the, as the word suggests, micro, they're very short. They're perhaps only sort of 20 plus, um, 20 to 30 bases long. And they're involved in a lot of regulatory processes within the body. And I think I read somewhere something like there's been 5,000 different micro RNAs being recognized in, in the human body. And there's been hundreds of thousands recognized across all the different species. So, you know, we don't understand all of them, what they do individually. But, you know, regulatory processes, as you know, are often intertwined and you can you, know, you can you can change one variable and in one cell and it will create a chain of events that has to be then altered and, and, and balanced in another. So the body is very sensitive not only to the presence of the microRNAs but also um, the quality of them and what they are. So we don't understand that. We don't understand that maybe if messenger RNA is broken down, it might be they might just happen to be a micro RNA that, that, that gets metabolized into that has an effect on that cell regulation that if it's involved in or, or it disrupts or interferes with that, you know, a micro RNA's activity, it's not always um, something that promotes an activity. It can be something that actually inhibits as well. So if you've got a micro RNA, for example, that inhibits cancer, um, formation and part of that whole cancer protection um, that goes on in each of us every day, then if that was to be interfered with, then there could be knock-on effects in terms of how other regulatory processes are being inhibited or promoted or, or just, just completely disrupted. So, you know, it, it's a very complex situation that um, – they, you know, they're introducing exogenous um, so that's external mRNAs into, and they're not even fully normal mRNAs because they're using pseudouridine instead of uridine in the mRNAs. And whilst it might have some benefits that they perceive in stabilizing the quality of the mRNA in, in the jabs, it we don't know how that pseudouridine, you know, if it's incorporated into a microRNA, then when it's broken down, we just don't know what that does to the body. So, you know, we are really playing with things that we don't understand. Well, I'm going to admit, I don't understand. I don't even think I can pronounce the word pseudo, but could you explain to our audience 
what you've just said in really simple English, because I know a lot, a lot of scientists and a, a lot of people will be watching this interview. And similarly, there'll be people like me who don't quite understand how that translates in simple English. Okay, so in, in um, sort of genetic material, you have pairs of bases, and there's um, there's two different types of pairs, really. And one of the one of the um, individual nucleotides within one of those pairs is uridine. Um, but what they've done with the um, the messenger RNA jabs is they've replaced that uridine with what they call pseudouridine. So it's got an extra extra little bit added onto it, which supposedly makes it more stable, which makes the, the mRNA more stable. So it's close to what naturally occurs, um, but it's not exactly the same. And the thing with um, proteins is that it's not an exact science in terms of how, how amino acids are coded for either. It can get, gets quite complicated. Um, so you could end up putting uh, or generating what you think is a certain protein, but if there's a different amino acid within that protein that, that isn't what you're expecting to be there, it can change the way that that protein folds. And of course, the whole point of of, of the immune system is it, it's trying to recognize a spatial structure, the, the tertiary structure of the protein in order for the antibodies to work out what it is they want to you know, protect us against. So if you change that structure of that protein, um, and it might only take a few, few um, amino acid changes within that, or maybe even only one if it's in a crucial area to change how that protein folds, then A, you're not going to get quite the same immune response that you think you might be stimulating. But B, if that change in protein structure means that that protein now becomes proanogenic, then you've got the start of this domino effect where you know, the proteins that you've introduced start causing misfolding in other proteins in the body, and that's, you know, increases. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it, you know, it, it is quite complex, and there's various different stages at which changes being introduced could potentially have significant um, changes in, in the end situation. As I said, I, I can't categorically say that these will all happen and it may not happen in every single situation. But the point is, the testing hasn't been done to establish what that risk is and how much it might happen. Um, so, you know, it's I, I can't, you know, I've got no crystal ball the same as anybody else. And my knowledge of how all the different micro RNAs interact is less than that you know than, than well, the same as most people in the public you know i i know about them and i know that they interact i don't understand micro rnas to the same degree as someone who's researching in that field but i have seen videos of people who do know that field saying this is crazy we are messing with things that we don't yet fully understand in a way that could have consequences that we just don't envisage because we're not looking and giving time for them to manifest. 
Right. Roger, as I understand it then, and I'm going to let you correct me quickly before we just go on to, because I know the uh, an, another area that you're very concerned about is liquid nanoparticles. Um, and I'm also very interested in those. So we'll come on to those in just a sec. So as I understand it, prion disease, um, spongiform encephalitis, perhaps the clues in the sponge, the imagine the sponge, what a sponge looks like. So proteins... Proteins, I'm, I'm imagining them as a, maybe a pancake. But if you put lots of pancakes together and overlap them, then you don't get any gaps. But if you fold the pancake and imagine the protein is the pancake, if that pancake was folded, then you're going to get gaps in between the pancakes. And that's the spongy form. And that's what leads to the symptoms and the disease and the problem because you get like almost am I being too um literal when I'm saying holes in the brain perhaps am I understanding that correctly or have I got that a bit wrong no I think I mean it's you know it is the brain goes a little bit like was it the amantula cheese the one that has the holes in it um so yeah, you just do get that sort of those gaps in the in the brain structure. I, I sort of envisage it a little bit like um, seeding crystals. You know, you start a crystal and then everything else, once you've got one in the solution, the rest all form around it. And I think, you know, the prion production is a little bit like that. So you've got one protein that starts it off and it induces the similar change because that makes them easier to stack together um in, in the other proteins so the same proteins with it within that cell um so it's you know it, it it is it's a tricky situation it's a tricky situation to to, to be able to even predict what what is going to be introduced into the body um to know how it's going to react and the only way that, that we know is is to have trials of sufficient length for that those changes to, to manifest. I mean, that's the whole point of having drug trials in the first place is that we don't understand the body sufficiently to be able to model it outside of actually trying it in individuals to see what the end effects are. That is the whole point of, of trialing. It's an admission in a way that we don't know enough about biology to be able to just rely on it as a purely academic, uh, theoretical situation so you know the way even in the conventional system the way drugs are licensed is a recognition that we don't know a lot about what goes on in the body because it is so complex and i'm not even convinced that ai could um could, could get to grips with all the different interactions of all the different proteins all the different micro rnas plus all the enzymes plus all the trace elements and minerals and antioxidants and all the rest you know it's it's just too complex a system to to really be able to comprehend on, on that level and for those of us with memories long enough um you know the we it's not that long ago since the 1990s and the disaster with the whole bse which was of course modeled by professor neil ferguson imperial college who happened to model COVID. So we won't go into that anymore because I really do. Um, I'm looking at the clock and there is so much. I mean, there's a whole new arena for us to explore here and human medicine, animal medicines, 
they are intrinsic, you know, they link in every which way. But I do want to address your concerns with regards to lipid nanoparticles um, in the mRNA and also how, what would the effect be on animals? What kind of symptoms or serious adverse reactions would you be expecting to see in animals through lipid nanoparticles? Um, and what are they, basically? Okay, so the lipid nanoparticles, it's that they're like the shell around the mRNA that's in the middle. So the thing, the reason why these products aren't true vaccines is because the idea of the lipid nanoparticle is to actually protect the messenger RNA in the middle from the immune system. Um, whereas when you had a true vaccine where you've got adjuvants, you're actually trying to stimulate an immune reaction to what you've injected. So you've got a known volume of what you're injecting and you, you know what you're going to stimulate in terms of reaction. Um, so the lipid nanoparticles protect the messenger RNA from the immune system until it's inserted into the cells to set the protein manufacturer going. So, but the lipid nanoparticles themselves have known are known to, to you know can be quite hyperinflammatory in themselves. They can cause immune reactions. Um, they can cause clumping, which of course can cause clots. And I'm highly suspicious that some of the more immediate adverse reactions that have been witnessed in the COVID um, jabs haven't necessarily been to the spike protein because I don't think it's had long enough to go into production. I suspect that there have been an adverse reaction to the lipid nanoparticles um, because they've they've set up a, an allergic reaction or an inflammatory reaction that, that's you know escalated out of control. So you know the adverse effects of the lipid nanoparticles in some ways are very much there's a physical element to it which could happen in any species i don't see why that should you know be difficult different from any in any animal or from and, and from people um but also then you've got the immune response so if if you've had an individual being exposed to the um the lipids polyethylene glycol which has often been used in the in the lipid nanoparticles if that's already the individual's already allergic to that, then obviously giving it is going to create an allergic reaction. Um, and of course, the more you give um, those lipid nanoparticles, the more likely you are to sensitize the individuals to those particles. It's a bit like you know people very often when if they stung by the bee the first time, they'll they'll get a local reaction. But if they continuously get stung by bees over a you know period of time. And they, the immune system starts seeing those that that beasting as something they really need to react to. Then that's when you get your hypersensitivity to the beasting, and you get the anaphylactic reaction, which obviously can be fatal. So, you know, the more something's exposed to to something that's foreign to the body, the more likely the body in the immune system is to see it as foreign and to you know and ramp up that, that adverse reaction to it. Roger, you have um, done a lovely little video on your website explaining your open letter. And of course, the copy of your open letter will have links beneath that will take you to that. Um, now, your open letter was to the VMD and we have the MHRA for humans. And doctors have the uh, General Medical Council overseeing them. What kind of response have you had, if any, 
from your open letter and who are your professional organization uh, that oversee you like the GMC and have they have they been at your heels um, or questioning any of, of, of your research and your questions? Um, in terms of the, the open letter, the um, I've had a reply from the Veterinary Medicine Directive from the VMD. They said they would reply in 15 days and they did exactly on the day. Um, they basically said that they safeguarded animal and human health and that they would continue to um, adhere to that directive, uh, you know, in terms of what they're supposed to be doing. So at this point in time, um, all we can do is take them at their word. Um, we've got no evidence to say that they haven't passed anything yet. So we don't know what um, what will happen in future. Um, I was a bit, I don't know how much notice they actually took of the letter, if I'm honest, because obviously I co-wrote it with Dr. Kevin McCann and the reply didn't mention him. It wasn't addressed to him. It was only addressed to me. Um, although, you know, I was the person who actually submitted it to them. Um, but he was a co-author, so should have been acknowledged. Um, and and the, the title of the document that came back said template. So in within the, within the title of the document. So I, I wonder how much notice was actually taken of it. Um, but that's, you know, the ball is now in their court from that point of view. And um, we will see how quickly, if at all, any mRNA products are licensed in the veterinary field. And if they are, then, you know, we can have a look at, at the submitted um, data and see whether it has addressed any of the concerns that were set out in the open letter. You know, as a nurse, I want to ask you, as a vet, how you are. Are you receiving any support from any of your colleagues at all? And how are you coping? I know a few friends who are vets who have similar views to me. Um, there's a lot of people who, you know, they don't want to stand up and I can understand why. I mean, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons who are our regulating body, they, they haven't approached me over my open letter at all, but they don't particularly like the way that um, I think differently and work differently. Um, and I've, you know, I've had interactions with them in the past. So um, there is definitely, having seen, I suspect, what's happened with the General Medical Council and the way some of the doctors have been attacked um, and some of them have lost their jobs, etc. I'm, I'm sure there is, to some degree, a hesitancy for, um, for people to stand up and maybe air their views. And maybe some of them have been so busy they haven't had time to, to, to look into it. Um, you know, I don't have a family or anything, so I, I've had plenty of spare time to, 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 to look into the research. And I became very interested in it early on. So it's become a sort of a bit of a, a passion to, to try and keep myself abreast of what I think the concerns are and what's going on. So, um, but I think, you know, we've reached this point in history where those of us who who understand 
all think we understand what's going on. We need to all stand together. And enough of us do, then it will be very difficult for all of us to be taken out together. And, you know, I think it's it's um, sad that the politics seems to be guiding the science. And it's been said, you know, in terms of the climate change and other other things as well, not just by me. So, you know, I'm not saying anything new, but, you know, the science needs to, to guide the politics. And yes, at the moment, it seems to be very much the other way around. There are so many areas. I'm so glad that we're in contact because I can hear our audience saying, um, let's talk cats, let's talk dogs, let's talk domestic animals as well. And I can hear farmers saying, what about us? How is the agenda impacting farming? Um, and I can see other people saying, well, this agenda seems to be literally running along parallel to the human agenda. Um, and there are so many other topics, for example, um, and these are to come, I hope, in we're, we're going we're gonna to wrap up now. But I just want to give our audience an idea of some of the things that you and I are going to be able to talk about, hopefully, in the very near future because um, we haven't even scratched the surface or told people that you're an EMF expert and that you use some amazing, amazing, incredible, um, well, I don't know what you would call them actually, but some incredible practices in your surgery that people may not have heard, for, heard of. So go to the website and have a look because it's uh, Wave Genetics and Herbs and supplements and bioresonance and there's so much information on Roger's website so please go and look because if you want the last chance bet and you want the alternative and you want a holistic solution then you've perhaps just found it but you know we've got other agendas like microchipping people are going to be talking to us about the safety of or the non-safety or the surveillance of microchipping our domestic pets in the future, um, cats and dogs, and also the impact on the domestic pet of the future, bearing in mind 15-minute cities. And I know that, Roger, you've got a lot to say about that. And there is so much to say about the animal kingdom in general. Um, <clears throat> let's not forget horses too because i know that one of your specialities is is horses and that you travel around the country as well and you zoom people too so if people want to connect with you we'll give you all the details in the article beneath but i think perhaps today we've focused on your extremely important open letter to the bmd we focused on your concerns of mrna being used in animals specifically pigs at the moment what's going to come on down the line and your concerns with the effects of mrna being used in animals into the food chain and how it will affect humans and we are just so grateful for passionate people like you who do have the time to do the research and do have the time to talk to us about it um, so that we excuse me, can do our own research. And certainly it's opened up a whole new Pandora's box for me, for which I'm very grateful. But on that note, Roger, I want to thank you so much for your time. And as always, I leave our guests with the last word. 
So this is no no different. Um, but we will be back to our audience. I promise you, we will bring Roger back. Um, but Roger, it's over to you for the last word. And thank you very much. God bless. Thanks, Debbie. Um, gosh, I think I think the sort of message is people need to to be aware of of what's going on. I think you know people like me do our research but i'm potentially as fallible as anybody else so i would always urge people to do their own research um i try when i put information out to always back it up with some sort of research paper or somebody who's far more expert than, than i am you know to that degree i i stand on the shoulders of all who have done the, the laboratory work and who've gone before me breaking um you know breaking the norm um I have a different understanding now of um, of how the body functions, perhaps more on a biophysics level than a, a biochemical level. And from that perspective, I I view things differently from the norm. Um, so I would just urge people to not take everything that they hear on trust and to do their research. Um, just be aware. Of, of of what's going on and you know keep keep a level head at the same time because you know we need to stand together we need to keep it real and we need to you know be prepared for what may be coming down the road that you know debbie's hinted out there and um you know we we've got to be mindful not just for ourselves but also for our animals um you know i became a vet because i wanted to to help animals and make a difference in the world um so you know that's that's really where we're coming from and uh you know we do our bit to try and try and keep that happening